Good morning. As has already been stated, but it's in my notes, so I'm going to say it again. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to have the opportunity to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, we, uh, we've been in Mark. Um, oh, by the way, happy Father's Day to all of you once again. Uh, it's a good day. Um, and uh, we've been hanging out in the book of Mark for quite some time. And I thought it would be good for us to just do a little bit of review um, because when you get so many messages and they're sort of all compartmentalized, it can be easy to lose the sense that Mark is writing to an audience, that Mark was a real person who lived in a real time and place, and he wrote these words who were then delivered to real people. And he's trying to communicate something. Now, whether it's Mark or Peter through Mark, there's an agenda here, and it's a great one, by the way. And so I think it's, it's helpful to review that Mark essentially announces Jesus to, to the world, and he, he confirms that John the Baptist's ministry was valid in chapter 1. And then we see Jesus coming on the scene and he's challenging Jewish power structures by healing on the Sabbath day. And then we get to Mark chapter four and, and the parable of the soils and, and, and Mark is communicating, hey, be good soil. And then he proceeds to give us several examples of what kind of soil people were that Jesus interacted with. And we see the disciples on the boat and the storm comes up and they're desperate and they cry out to Jesus for help. And we see the, the demon-possessed man and, and, and Jesus rescuing him. And then we see the townspeople reject Jesus in that place. They're like, hey, we're glad you rescued this guy, but we need you to leave. And then it moves on and Jesus goes back across the lake and we meet Jairus and his desperation for his daughter. And we see the woman with the issue of blood and her desperation and Jesus heals them. And then we come to Mark chapter 6. And I got to be honest, I was a little less than enthused when I found out that verses 1 through 13 would be my passage. I mean, Darren, a couple weeks ago, matter of fact, he loved this passage so much, he spent three weeks on it. He gets ugly, naked, demon-possessed guy in the middle of nowhere. Thank you. So you. That's a friend's reference. You'll, it'll, it'll happen later. I'll never tell that joke again. Um, and I can just imagine it's like a J.J. Abrams film and this power encounter and Jesus meets this man whose name is Legion. And by the way, make no mistake, Mark is taking a shot at the Roman authorities through that, that my name is Legion. And he's saying that Jesus is more powerful than Rome. And so Darren gets that passage and then, you know, Mo gets... Jairus and a daughter being raised from the dead and this woman who's been suffering for 12 years and she believes that Jesus is the Messiah and touches the edge of his cloak and gets healed. And I'm like, that's awesome. And I get Jesus rejected in his hometown. Nothing happens here. <laughs> but as I began to study and think and meditate and say, Lord, there's a reason that you have this in your book. He began to show me some things and especially as you sort of contrast them to what happens at the end of chapter 5, there's some really powerful messages here that I believe Mark wants to communicate to us. Because remember, those numbers that you see there, they weren't there when Mark wrote them. So this is just a continuation. And so I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We read, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, 
Where does he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? And they scoffed. <laughs> He's just a carpenter. The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals. Boy, that was really nice of him. He allowed them to wear sandals. Oh, there we go. And did, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Let's pray. Father, as we as a church family gather before your word, may we be open to where your spirit is leading us today. Your words, no more, no less. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna focus our attention this morning on the first six verses of this passage. And the first, and I have several observations that I believe um, God showed me as I was thinking and meditating on, on this passage. And the first thing that I noticed is that his hometown thought they knew Jesus. His hometown thought they knew Jesus. Verse two says, the next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed and they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? And they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Now this is Jesus' second trip to his hometown. Luke chapter four records for us the first time Jesus went to Nazareth, and that's the beginning of his ministry. He's announcing that the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and I'm here to declare the year of the Lord's favor. He's announcing that the kingdom of God is right here, right now. You no longer have to wait for it. It's beginning this moment. That visit did not go well. At the end of that, they're ready to kill Jesus. Literally about to grab him, throw him off a cliff. And Jesus wonderfully and amazingly slips away and no harm comes to him. And this is probably a year or two later. He comes back to his hometown. They have no doubt heard of the miracles and the fame of Jesus spreading. And I wonder if Jesus is excited because these are people that he loves. These are people that, that he grew up with. These are people that know him. Maybe he has childhood friends that he's excited to see and he wants them to join with him in his mission in the kingdom of God. And they receive him not so well. As a matter of fact, it says that they scoffed at him. They thought, who's this guy think he is? I mean, he's just a carpenter. And then it's not a carpenter as you and I would know them today. It's more of a, a builder, someone who works with stone and wood. And, you know, they're probably thinking, I mean, this guy just built a shed for my cousin last week. No, don't get me wrong. It's the most perfect shed I have ever seen. <laughs> but, I mean, come on. Jesus, Really? He perhaps, they were questioning his credentials because 
Jesus clearly has adopted a trade, and in that culture, if you were going to be a rabbi, there was a series of schooling that you had to go through. And it started at a very young age, and, and there was sort of an elimination process that only the best of the best would ever hope to ever attain the level of a rabbi, which included being a part of and under a famous rabbi of the area. You would go and ask the rabbi to fo- if you could follow him. And that rabbi would either choose to accept or reject you following them, and you would spend some years with them learning the Mishnah and the interpretations of the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't do that. It also makes it more interesting when Jesus says to his disciples, come follow me, so that he's the rabbi asking them versus the other way around. So he didn't have the right credentials. Jesus had adopted a trade, whether that's because Joseph had passed away, we don't know, but he clearly was not considered the best of the best. He probably had a very unremarkable childhood, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. And perhaps they were just comfortable with their positions as, as Jewish people, We're God's chosen people. Of course we'll know when the Messiah comes. I mean, we know what it's supposed to look like, and Jesus is not it. When the Messiah comes, he's going to overthrow this Roman oppression. It's going to be a political kingdom. And Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is not of this world. But it's still just as dangerous and just as subversive. It no longer bows to the power structures that are set up on this planet. I mean, in chapter three, it records to us that even his own family thought that he was crazy. And their impression just kind of reminds me of a recent contestant on America's Got Talent. His name was Cody Lee. Yeah, right? I know. I debated long and hard about whether or not I should show show some of this video. But I did not want to be responsible for making grown men, including myself, cry on Father's Day. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, it is well worth your time to YouTube it, grab yourself a box of tissues because I don't care who you are. Well, if you don't cry, you might want to check whether or not you have a soul. Um, But Cody is blind and autistic. I love stuff like this. When he comes out and proceeds to sit down, and I'm, you know, if you've watched America's Got Talent, you're like, okay, I'm being set up for something here. Um, This is gonna be, this is gonna be pretty good. But the fact that he sits down, I'm like, oh wow, he plays the piano, that's amazing. I mean, he's blind, right? And I'm like, oh, I'm sure he has a fair voice. But then he opens his mouth, and you're like, oh, my goodness. Just as a side note, I love how God takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. But Jesus getting rejected in his hometown is like seeing Cody Lee come out on stage. You're like, oh, I know how this is going to go. This guy can't sing. And then you walk away. And before we're tempted to throw stones at the people of Nazareth, I want us to ask ourselves, are we too familiar with Jesus? Do we think that we know everything that there is to know about how he lives and moves and acts? Thank you, whoever you are back there. That is really encouraging. We're probably going to go long, but that's okay. No, I'm just kidding. But we can fall into the temptation that we think we know how God moves And sometimes we wonder, man, why don't we see more miracles here in the United States? I wonder if we've grown comfortable and we think that, well, if I just go to church and maybe join a small group, give a little bit, that's all there is to it, right? Like that's that's what it means to follow Jesus. And I think what Jesus and what Mark is saying is like, no, there's so much more. So has he become predictable to you?
And before we move on to the next observation, I also want to encourage those of you that, you know, I know it's Father's Day and family relations can be weird and, and strange and tough, but I just want to encourage you that Jesus knows what it is to be rejected by family. So if that's you here this morning, you can cry out to him and he knows exactly how you feel. So not only do his, not only does his hometown think that they know who he is, but number two, the second observation is the town's unbelief impacted Jesus' power. Verse five says this, and because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And the sick people that he's healing there, which no, you know, no mistake, that, that's definite healing, but it's not of any diseases. Basically, the, the Greek there is they're, they're of weak constitution is how most commentators refer to it. So they maybe have a little bit of a hypochondria. So they get healed, but it's their lack of faith affected Jesus' power. Now, some of you are like, I knew it. So I just need more faith. Is that what you're telling me? I want you to hold that thought for just a moment. Okay? I think the people of Nazareth essentially got what they expected. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe that he could be the Messiah. They, they, they thought they knew what the Messiah would look like, and Jesus wasn't it. And so they got what they expected out of Jesus, which was nothing. And I remember in my own life, um, about a couple years ago, I'd reached a point where I'm sort of coasting along. Like, I love Jesus. I'm, you know, I'm on staff at a church, and, and I'm, I'm wanting to pursue the kingdom. But I kind of have thought, like, you know, I mean, how much more could there possibly be to experience and know? I'd already blown up my life. Um, I had thankfully chosen healing and repentance and restoration and had walked through that. I come out the other side. My marriage is, is in a great place. I've, you know, got great kids. And I just kind of thought, okay, well, I'm just going to be faithful until I die. And God began to tap me on the shoulder and say, I have more for you if you'll let me. And with a clenched fist, the Lord revealed to me that I was holding on to something very, very tightly. Because I thought I'd already used up my grace card. I thought I'd, you know, I'd screwed up and, and, and like you only get one chance. And Jesus is like, no, I have more for you. And specifically what I was holding on to was my future. I felt like that, that was my job, my responsibility. I wanted to control it, specifically like my career and financial future. So I was holding on to that really tightly, and, and God was saying, if you'll just let go of that, I will take you further than you ever thought possible. So slowly but surely, I began to pry my fingers open, and that's literally what it was. My wife had gotten a mentor about this time, and I saw how that was affecting her life positively, so I thought, well, maybe I should get one of those. And so I did. And I'm telling you, over the last year and a half, I have discovered a depth and richness to Jesus that I have ever known. And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm just here to tell you there is more for you than this on Sunday morning. Now, this is great, right? I mean, we, this, I mean, if you're looking for a church family, I can recommend an awesome one that is fully flawed and is just stumbling its way forward. But we have a good time, don't we? Right? But there's more. And getting back to our question, oh, and by the way, my circumstances haven't changed that much, right? I mean, I haven't been given independent wealth. 
even though I ask for it every day. <laughs> That's not true. Well, okay, maybe it's a little, no. <laughs> and my excuse was too, is like, well, Lord, I mean, I trust you. I know you're God and anything's possible, but I don't trust your kids. Like I'm the only one who's following Jesus. I mean, how arrogant. I know, the Lord's working with me on that. And God says, oh, you have no idea. I'm working in so many other people, and I want to work in you too. And so then we get back to our question. Because some of you are like, ah, so how much faith do we need? Because I need to know that. What's the number? And Mo already answered that question for us beautifully last week with that quote from Tim Keller, Tim Keller excuse me, that it's not the amount of our faith that is important, but the object of our faith. Jairus, the woman with the issue of blood, the demon-possessed man, they were just desperate for God. And God came in and healed them. We're going to learn about in Mark chapter 9, I believe, there's a man who says, says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That is a prayer I have prayed often in the last two years. Lord, I believe, I really want to, I really don't believe, but help my unbelief because I want to. And just as a, a compliment to that, avoid the temptation to look around at other people's circumstances and compare them to your own. Because I can do that. I can look over and be like, man, that's God's favorite kid and I'm not his favorite kid. Right? It reminds me of Peter and John at the end of the book of John where, where Jesus calls Peter to follow him. And Peter looks back and he says, well, what about, what about John? And Jesus essentially says, well, what about John? I want you to follow me. If I want him to live till I come again, what's that to you? Each of our paths is different and wherever we're at is specifically where we need to be because there's something for us to learn and a place for us to grow. The woman with the issue of blood, she didn't want to suffer with that for 12 years. Is God cruel and unjust for allowing her to suffer that long? Is God cruel and unjust in your life? And hey, I get it. That woman probably thought God was cruel and unjust. She was a social outcast. Maybe you feel that God is being cruel and unjust in you and I understand, I totally can relate. And don't blame you. But I encourage and challenge you to think that there is maybe something in that space for you to learn, to grow. There's a layer that God wants to peel apart, something that he wants you to give over to him, something that needs to be sifted out of you. I encourage you to embrace that. So not only did his hometown think that they knew who Jesus was and that unbelief impacted his power, but thirdly, what I noticed is that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Amazed at their unbelief. And I think Jesus like shows up and I think he's like, I, you know, he's excited. He, I'm like, I'm going back to my hometown. I love these people and I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach and, and maybe we'll get to do some miracles. And maybe, maybe this time, like they've heard the stories and they'll want to believe. I believe Jesus genuinely cared about these people. And then when it sort of blows up in his face, he's like, what just happened here? Like, have you ever had that happen to you? Like you're genuinely trying to help someone and all of a sudden it just blows up like just cataclysmic in your face and you're like, what? That escalated quickly. Like what did I do? Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Incredibles movie um, and uh, the scene where a man throws himself off of a building, which by the way, does that not strike you as a little dark for Disney? <laughs> We're gonna watch a man plunge to his death but then Mr. Incredible comes in and saves the day. 
right? But then we know what happens, right? That man turns around and sues Mr. Incredible. And that famous scene outside the courtroom where the lawyer's like, my client didn't ask to be saved. My client, you know, sustained serious injuries as a result of his actions, blah, 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 blah. And Mr. Incredible's like, I saved your life. I think Jesus is kind of like, I want to save your life. But the biggest thing that I notice is that word amazed. Jesus was amazed. It just struck me because I'm like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean he was amazed? Isn't Jesus omniscient? And that word amazed is actually used one other place in reference to Jesus. It's actually Luke chapter 7. And Jesus is is, uh, interacting with a a Roman centurion who is concerned for one of his servants, which, by the way, was a big deal because Roman centurions were not often concerned with their servants. And their servant had fallen ill, and he comes to Jesus, and he begs Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's go. And then the centurion's like, no, no, no. I don't want to take you away from here. I believe that you are powerful enough that you can just say the word, and he'll be healed. And it says that Jesus was amazed at his faith. Same word. So just as amazed as Jesus was as that man's faith, he was equally amazed at his hometown's lack of faith. And again, I was like, wait, wait, what do you mean Jesus was amazed? Is Mark just trying to make Jesus appear more human? Because I kind of had this idea that Jesus was like Superman growing up, right? He's a child and it's time for him to take a bath. And Mary's like, get in the tub. And he stands on top of the water, right? It's like walking through the town and healing animals as he goes by, you know? Or, you know, something breaks in the living room and Mary rushes in and it's Jesus and one of his brothers. And the brother's like, it was me. (laughs) But I think, and I began to wonder if Jesus was maybe less omniscient than I think he is. Now, he is all God and all man, so I'm not suggesting anything other than that. Please hear me. He certainly had a divine nature. He did not sin. But I wonder if he emptied himself a little more than I thought he did. I mean, if you look at this hometown's reaction to him, like, I don't think Jesus had a really amazing childhood. Like, he wasn't the star quarterback and Mr. All Everything. I mean, Isaiah tells us he had no form or beauty that we should desire him. He just was unremarkable. Average Jesus who became a carpenter. But he was so much more than that. And as I thought about that some more, I began realizing that what if Jesus is more relatable than I think he is? What if his dependence on the Spirit and communication with the Father is something that is possible for you and me? I don't know about you, but that makes me a little excited. That that level of reliance on the Spirit is possible possible. And what if a group of us decided to take Jesus at his word that we will do greater things than him if we allow God to take us even deeper into himself? Because then that affects who I am as a man. That affects how I relate to my wife. It affects how I relate to my children and everybody that I come in contact with. And I'm not talking about walking around and like healing people and, and you know, um, 
or anything like that. I'm just talking about the everyday, the in the mundane. I think that's, that's where the miracle happens, when things are not that exciting, when things are sort of steady. I also think that's the challenge. It's easy for us to cry out to God when, when times are desperate, but it's when things are going easier that it's a challenge for us to wake up every day and say, God, but for you, I can't do today. And so I think God has so much more in store for us if we are just willing. But he's not going to force us, which leads me to observation number four, which is their reaction didn't keep him from his mission. We read, you know, it actually doesn't even finish verse six. It's just like, and then Jesus went to village to village. Mark lets his reader know, like, Jesus didn't stop. He wasn't crippled by his hometown's unbelief. He didn't get sad and despondent. He just said, okay, have it your way. And not in a arrogant sort of, you know, I'm done with you. It's just like God's going to allow you to do what you want to do. I mean, just like when he went to the the demon-possessed man's town. I mean, here this man had terrorized this local community for who knows how long, and all of a sudden, you know, 2,000 pigs go off a cliff and, and the town shows up and they're like, um, yeah, that's great. We appreciate what you did here, but we're a little freaked out, so we're going to need you to leave. And it's not like Jesus got in the boat and was like, was it something I said? <laughs> no, he just kept moving right along. Um, <laughs> it, uh, everything with God is an invitation. Um, we were at Kentucky Kingdom last year as a family. And there's a water slide there uh, that you kind of have to walk up a, a bunch of stuff. So it's one of those larger, like, um, tubes, and you can fit, like, four people in it, and you're in, like, a, a big tunnel, and it's, like, dark. And, you know, it's a very sort of innocuous ride. Nothing, there's no big drops or anything like that. So I was like, great, I'm going to get all my kids, and we're going to go ride this, this water slide together. So I round up my, my family, and one of my children was like, uh, no, that's really high, and I'm not going up there. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. There's no drops. I promise there's no drops. And he didn't believe me. And I was a little hurt by that because I don't know why my kids think that I am sadistic and want to cause them pain and suffering. <laughs> but this one did. And I, so I did what any good dad would do is I forced that child to get in line. <laughs> I know. It's not my proudest moment. It gets worse. So we're going up the stairs, and the closer we get, this child gets more agitated, more freaked out, and is just like, I don't want to do this. And so I'm using all the levers. I'm taking away privileges. I know. I know. Don't. Like, how many of you as dads, you know, when your child was a toddler, may have, because they're holding up the, sl- you know, the line at the little water park um, slide, and you just went, whoop, and just pushed them down the slide? Yeah. Okay, I was afraid it was just me. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and then your wife is like, why did you do that? And I'm like, because they're holding up the line. Um, but that's another message for another day. But so we're getting closer and closer, and I'm using all the levers. And then and I said, finally, I, you know, in my not proudest moment, I broke my rule, which is the ends never justify the means. Because the end was I wanted them to enjoy this water slide that I knew that they would enjoy if they would just trust me. And they didn't, and so I threatened to ground them. <laughs> I was totally bluffing. But I was like, please don't call my bluff, please don't call my bluff. And they did, and they said, fine, ground me. And they turned and walked down the stairs and left. And then, I, you know, I didn't chase them because I didn't want to cause a scene. Um, 
And so I felt bad for that child because I knew that they were about to miss out on a really, you know, cool opportunity. And me and the rest of my kids, we stayed in line and finished the ride and had a great time. Um, and I think that's, you know, what God is saying to us as he invites us, but he's not going to force us, unlike me. And I'm working on that. And when, by, the, by the way, to finish the story, when we got done, I apologized. I said, I shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry. I just really wanted you to experience this with us. And, you know, we were all good. And, you know, the ticks have mostly stopped for uh, that child. But it's up to us to either accept the invitation or reject it. And that includes the very first invitation that God extends to those of us who would want to be followers of him. And that is that there is a God and that he loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And Jesus, not only, he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead three days later, proving that he was who he said he was and that his death on the cross was a legitimate payment for your sins and mine. And that if we come to God and we say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and I want to give my life to follow you, that in that moment, we become a part of God's family. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with the heart that man believes and is justified and it is with the mouth that confession is made into salvation. And so if you're here today and you've never had a moment where you've taken that step and surrendered your life, asked for his forgiveness and asked him to come and rescue you and make you a part of his family, let me encourage you to make that day today. You may be sitting here like, but I'm an American Christian. That's not good enough. It wasn't good enough for the Jewish people. The call to follow is an individual one. You're not going to get there just because your family brings you to church. You're not going to get there just because you show up at church every week. So I encourage you to accept that invitation. But then know that that, that the moment you step into God's family, that's not the end of the journey. That's just the beginning. You are now part of the greatest family to ever walk the face of the earth. And we have brothers and sisters all over the world pursuing God together. And I want you to be a part of that. So, what is Mark trying to tell us? What does he want us to know? Well, I think what he wants us to know is that Jesus is the Messiah. Follow him. And the more I thought about that, and, and like, wh- how is Mark communicating that to us in Mark chapter 6, especially as it relates to Mark chapter 5? What did all the people that Jesus healed have in common? Well, we've already kind of alluded to it, right? The disciples in the boat, the demon-possessed man, Jairus, the woman with the issue of blood, they were all desperate. And what did the people who rejected Jesus, what did they have in common? They were in groups, And then I ask myself the question, why is it that God chooses to use desperate circumstances seemingly most often when he wants us, when he wants to get our attention? Because I mean, who, does anybody enjoy desperate circumstances? I don't. I think it's ugh. Right? And I came across this, this study in which they were uh, doing MRI um, tests on people and how they are affected by social pressure and uh, they would asked them a series of questions in which the group would give the wrong answer on purpose to see how it affected the person in the MRI uh, test. And what they found was is that they would give the wrong answer 
to go along with the group. And what that affected in the part of their brain was their ability um, to distort their own reality. We are willing to distort our reality in order to stay with the group. So I believe God uses desperate situations to pull us away from the group so that we can hear what he has to say. So Mark is telling his audience, you may have to break away from your family. Jesus was rejected by his own family or social group, but it is worth it. So let me ask, how many of you have ever experienced difficult times, desperate situations? Keep your hands up. All right, everybody look around. So this is proof that the lie that the enemy tells us, that we're the only ones experiencing these difficult situations, is in fact a lie. And the fact that you've experienced difficult situations is great news. And then you're like, I don't know, it doesn't feel like great news. I know, it doesn't feel like great news when I'm going through it either. But it is. You know why? Because it means that God thinks you are worthy to go deeper with him. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for leaders. It's not just for the super committed. No, he wants all of us to trust him and let him take us deeper into himself. I think that's what James says means when he says, count it all joy when you face trials of many kind. Because that's what God's doing. He's saying, hey, you're valuable to me. There's more I have for you. Will you trust me with it? And even if you failed in the past, I mean, look at Jesus' brother, James. In Mark chapter three, he thinks Jesus is crazy. And in this Mark chapter six, he rejects him. But then we find out that James eventually becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem and one of the first martyrs. So even if you've screwed up in the past, and I know I have, God's still gonna bring circumstances around to show us that he wants us to go deeper with him. So, what's your next step? What is the Spirit, even now, gently asking you to do? Maybe for some of you, it's to take that step and become a part of a God's family. Maybe for others, it's to develop some disciplines and spiritual habits in your life so that you can hear the Spirit more clearly. Maybe you need to find a mentor. Maybe you need to let go of hurts you've experienced from other church families and give this church family a shot. Whatever it is, I encourage you to take that step today. I'm gonna close with this quote from Dallas Willard, which says, we should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink, tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. I love that phrase, soul-exhilarating joy. Even in the mundane, even in the day-to-day, that is possible. So may you have the courage to take the next step and go deeper in your transformation journey. And may you experience more of his infinite joy and rest that he finds you worthy to continue to work in and around you to help you become what he imagined you to be.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for passages like this that show us that you want so much more for us. I pray that all of us would take that next step, whatever it is, and we would step in to trust you more. And I'm excited to see the lives that will be transformed as a result. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.